trailer trash has become funny because of some Netflix specials and Hollywood movies and everything. But I'll tell you who lives in most of my properties. It's the blue collar handy man and handy women. They take pride in their homes. And even if they're not buying it, they rent it. They want to stay there a long time and they take pride in it. The electrician, the carpenter, the roofer, the AC tech. It's their home to live in. And I have found that they take good care of it. If we buy a good home in a good area, it's going to attract a good person. The opposite would be true if we buy a bad home in a bad area and we don't fix it up at all, who do we think we're going to attract? A not-so-good person. And that's in all asset classes. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Adrian Spoon. You've probably heard of mobile home park investing, but have you heard of mobile home investing? Well, today you're getting a deep dive on Adrian's business and investment model for buying individual mobile homes and turning them into passive cash flow. We talk about how he finds deals, how he adds value, finds the right tenants, and some important stigmas to mobile home investing that just aren't true and how he deals with them and gets good cash flowing deals done. Great conversation. You're going to learn a ton. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, or had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially passively investing with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Now, let's get with Adrian. Adrian, thanks for joining us today. I'm looking forward to talking about mobile home investing versus mobile home park investing. But before we dive into that distinction, can you tell our listeners about what you're doing today in the mobile home space? So today I focus on a single unit mobile home with the land. That is a home and land together, an individual unit. It's a real estate transaction. I like to buy them and rent them out long term. I'll do a little bit of wholesale. I'll do a little bit of rent to own different things. My bread and butter is to buy and rent. And I stay within the central Florida area, a real tight market because there are enough mobile homes and I don't have to learn a whole nother state's regulations and find different contractors. I just have to look a little harder and I can find them in my little tight buying diamond. Okay. So there's so much there that we can dig into, but first let's start with talking about Buying the single home versus investing in the parks. There are a lot of folks out there today that are investing in mobile home parks, but not a lot of guys focusing on the individual home type of transaction. Why have you narrowed yourself down to these one unit buy and rent deals? Well, one of the reasons is exactly what you just said. There's a lot of people in the mobile home park, which means a lot of competition. There's not a lot of people in the individuals which means there's not much competition. Competition means I have to work harder to find a deal. So that is one of my big reasons. That also means that less competition means the prices aren't driven up by demand of everyone trying to go after it. So I get actually better returns on my investments and I can help more people. It's a less crowded space, meaning the sellers need more help because they have less people trying to help them out. Diversification, you can put that in there. And those are some of my big reasons. They're recession resistant, but the mobile home parks themselves are essentially recession resistant as well. 
Okay. So that makes sense. There's less competition in the space, but you know, I'm wondering about where you go to find deals because at least in any areas where I do real estate transactions, there aren't a lot of deals popping up that are single mobile homes on a plot of land, you know, things out there. So how do you find these opportunities? I look for them the same way everyone else would. I just change the word house to mobile home. So the MLS can work, mailers can work, signs on the side of the road would work, door knocking, anything would work. Personally, I'm a networker by just personality. So I just tell everyone what I do. Whenever I'm at home in my buying area, I am wearing a t-shirt that says, my wife buys mobile homes. I'm posting on Facebook saying, I buy mobile homes. I tell everyone I'm like a broken record. People get annoyed with me almost, but I have to keep reminding them over and over. So as other investors, I'll go to a meeting and say, I buy mobile homes. At the end of the meeting, you'll come up to me like, why would you buy mobile homes? Those are terrible. They go down in value. It's all trailer trash, blah, blah, blah. So you're right. Send me all your leads. And they do. <laughs> realtors are similar. You know, we know realtors get paid by the transaction price. So they love mobile home parks. But a single unit, it's got way less zeros. So they're going to do the same amount of work for less money. Eh, not always. But realtors still want to help people. So I became an information source. I help them with anything they need. And every once in a while, they just say, Adrian, will you just buy this mobile home? Because I just want to help the person out. I'm too busy over here making better money. So I became an information source. So leads from referrals are my biggest way. Interesting. Okay. So let's talk about a typical deal structure. If we're going to go buy a single family property to hold and rent out, maybe we put 20% down, get a 30-year mortgage and, you know, just to hang on to it. But I would imagine in the mobile home space, the structure is very different. How do you typically finance these deals and like plan out the financial future of the investment? I'm going to break that up into two kind of age groups of mobile homes. First, we'll say 1990s and newer. They are very similar to the single family. You can get bank financing. I would suggest talking to your local credit union and your, uh, community banks. They're going to be your best bet. So that's not that far off. But what if we're talking about 1960s and 1970s, an old trailer that's scary to most people? There isn't bank financing. You're right. On those years, those are my bread and butter that I've made a lot of money on. It's owner financing and it's private money. Friends and family that have extra lazy money sitting around and they lend on it. Those have been the two best ways I finance. The banks, they will not touch anything older than this very important date, June 15th, 1976. It's not my birthday. That is the year that the federal government HUD stepped in and said, we're going to make a standard of what these mobile homes are made out of. Before that, there wasn't one and it was kind of scary. So after that, there is a standard and that's the year that the banks use. Getting one financeable all the way back to that age is going to be expensive and difficult. So a lot of times it's not worth it. Well, people focus more on the eighties and newer. That's why I really say the nineties is when it becomes much easier. So older than that, a lot of people don't want to understand and learn how to create rapport with this seller and really know what their needs are and maybe pay them three times what it's worth. If they'll take payments that allows me to cash flow it. So, you know, it's a give and take and just a relationship. What do you really need? And what do I really need? And if we can meet in the middle somewhere, 
it works. Okay, so you mentioned paying them three times what it's worth, which you know sends up some some flags there. We'll talk about it, but first we need to start to understand what one of these properties is worth. And in more, let's say, traditional real estate investing spaces and multifamily, we have the NOI and cap rate calculations, single family properties, we have comps and everything, but mobile homes, you're, you know, kind of out on your own, right? How do you arrive at the actual, you know, fair market value of a mobile home that was built in the 60s and 70s and 80s? On those, I actually do it closer to what you do in the multifamily space. Now, this is because I plan to buy and hold it. I like paychecks coming in every month, that rent that's predictable. I'm looking at like I'm buying this asset, happens to be a trailer with some land, and how much money is it going to give me every month? So I actually run my numbers very similar to you. Like I want my cash flow. Now I want a higher cash flow if it's an older property that there's not much value there, the appraisal value. So now I have a little bit higher risk. You know, I can't get the bank financing. I have less exit strategies. So I do need a higher return in that manner. So that's how I look at it. You can fix and flip them. I would honestly stay from the 1990s and newer, and then you wouldn't do that any different than any single family home. You could fix and flip an older one, but you're going to need to carry the financing of some sort. I don't get into that. Obviously, you have to read the SAFE Act and make sure you're keeping everything legal there. But it is a possibility that some people do. Okay. So running that cash flow calculation and determining a price that works for you in the discussion with a seller, do you present that calculation to them and say, hey, look, this is the price that I can make work because, look, I got to make money on this thing after I buy it from you? Or how do you handle that and present that to a seller? I have done that. Really what I do is I go on the appointment and I actually schedule my calendar three hours because I'm there to talk and get to know them. And I talk about everything and make them bring up price or talking about actual buying the place. I'll talk about something I see in their wall and like, oh, I've never been to that place before. You know, I've never been to Maine or I never, where, where was this picture taken? I'm genuinely interested in people's lives, especially travel. So I just talk and talk and talk. Obviously, I like to talk, so it's not hard for me. And I'm building the rapport, which helps them trust me. And then eventually we will talk about the property. And if they put out a price that I think is too high, my reply is, actually, no matter what price they put out at first, I say, Taylor, I could pay that if it's on payments. And then I have that long, awkward silence. I would do it longer than that because I'm waiting to hear their response. And if it's not an initial no, then all right, well, there's something there. You know, we can talk about it and we just, we talk. The scenario that I just paid three times what it's worth, I knew that I could cash flow it because she gave me very good terms. It's $125 a month, principal only. Six months of no payments. Okay, I'm going to massively overpay. I'm going to, now I'm going to pay a little bit more on my property taxes because, you know, we're paying a higher price for the unit. But I'm able to cash flow it still. I had some months to get a little bit of money coming back and then $125 a month. I also know that there's a chance she's going to want to pay off early for a discount. You know, there's some other, the uh, second bite of the apple, some people call it. I'm not going to bank on that, but as long as I can still cash flow it really well, my return on my investments, what I want, I'll give your ego your price. I don't say that, of course. So- 
<laughs> in that case, how long do you have to pay her off, assuming she doesn't want the early payoff? We solved for that number. She had the price in mind. I had the payments in mind. We kept it at zero. And we put that in the financial calculator and it said the X amount of years. Well, obviously, the, the piece we didn't talk about is the amount down. And I actually got discounts on it before we fully closed because she needed more money all of a sudden. Well, I could give you a little bit more down, but I'm going to need a little discount off. So the negotiating had already started before we were even able to close. Gotcha. Okay. So was it just to put some brackets on it? Was it like more or less than 10 years to pay it off? Oh yeah. I should have that memorized by now. I think it was, yes, nine and a half years. It it came to me. It was about nine and a half years. I already can read the situation because I've been doing it long enough that she's going to ask for some money in advance. There's an emotional tie. This is a little bit more in the single family world than the multifamily world, but there's an emotional tie to a property. And then once that emotional tie goes away, now it's just a check coming in. There's not so much of an emotional tie. So the amount of money that you have to get for it kind of goes away. That's what I have found. So they'll take that discount when it's a amount of money I owe them versus the discount on their home or you know their grandma's home or whatever it is. That makes sense. So you had briefly touched on property taxes. And since you invest in Florida, bring up the... Uh two 800-pound gorillas about investing in Florida, the taxes and the insurance, the two big ones there. So how does that impact your investing model? Well, let's go with a good one first, the taxes. Property taxes, like most people, the government doesn't think there's much value in an old trailer. So we pay much lower property taxes. The land will dictate that a little bit. I kind of have two different products I buy. The old 1960s and 70s, it's down a dirt road, off of a dirt road. The home and land don't have a ton of value, but it'll cash flow. It's in an area that people want to live. So that property tax is pretty low. I have another one that's maybe the 90s. It's an acre. It's in the path of progress. I call those my lotto tickets because a builder is going to want to buy it out, but it'll cash flow Mm -hmm. until... Now those... I am paying a little bit more property tax because it's an acre of land in the path of progress. But the home itself is not valued as high. If that was a single family ranch home, I would be paying much higher property taxes. So that's the good news. The insurance, which is a nightmare, as you mentioned, in Florida in general, we're included in that nightmare. And it's gotten a little bit worse for us. Currently, We don't know what's going to change after this podcast is over because it seems to be changing that fast in Florida. But currently, we cannot get insurance anything older than the 1990s, maybe a little bit in the 80s at all. Now, that is supposed to be changing. There's some whisper about that. I used to be able to get coverage on any age. I couldn't get hurricane coverage, though, older than the 80s. Remember, I'm in Plant City area, and I stick within 30 minutes of that. That's important because Florida changes no matter where you're at. If you're closer to the coast, it's going to be a stricter year because obviously the higher winds. So that literally changes everywhere you go in Florida of what year. They go have a wind zone rating. So right now, I can get full coverage that covers the home, it covers the land, it covers my liability for the 90s and newer. I am comfortable self-insuring properties. 
meaning I have liability only. I have a few dozen properties, so I'm comfortable with that. If I had three or four properties, that would be scary. And I'm buying at a number that makes sense to self-insure. So that's another important piece to it. I have to take that into account. I have a higher risk, so now I need a higher reward because of that. That makes sense. Do you bring that fact up when talking to sellers? I could see that being powerful. I do. And luckily, the media is all over this insurance problem. So they're not, you know, oblivious to it. And it's always easy. Like, you know, like they're harder on us as investors than they are on homeowners. And everyone kind of gets that as well. The property tax, I will go back to that for a second. When someone's owned it that long, most of our property appraiser websites, they have an estimator that we can put in how much we're going to pay for the property. It'll show us the new rates. Sometimes it triples or quadruples in property taxes. And I just show them that. I mean, that's not me. Now that's the property appraiser site. They're the bad guys. And sometimes it's like, well, all right, they don't want to sell because of that, because they realize that the price has just come down. I try to make sure that everyone else is the bad guy, except for Adrian. I, blame, I love blaming the government too, because everyone likes to blame the government. Especially in Florida. Yeah, no, I yeah. get that. Okay. So early on, you had mentioned about the perception that folks have of quote unquote trailer trash folks who want to live in these properties, those preconceptions. How do you deal with that? You know, um, stigma, that, that idea and that stigma of, of the tenant and how do you find good tenants and, you know, the, the stigma then carrying along with it, higher repair and maintenance bills and everything associated with that. So what's your thought on that stigma? My thought is it's a stereotype and like all stereotypes, they're usually embellished. So trailer trash has become funny because of some Netflix specials and Hollywood movies and everything. But I'll tell you who lives in most of my properties. It's the blue collar handyman and handy women. They take pride in their homes. And even if they're not buying it, they rent it. They want to stay there a long time and they take pride in it. The electrician, the carpenter, the roofer, the AC tech, it's their home to live in. And I have found that they take good care of it. If we buy a good home in a good area, it's going to attract a good person. The opposite would be true. If we buy a bad home in a bad area and we don't fix it up at all, who do we think we're going to attract? A not so good person. And that's in all asset classes. That's apartments, that's mobile home parks, that's mobile homes, that's houses. Everything's like that. It's location and it's how we treat the property. That's who we're going to attract. We haven't had much of an issue with that. I don't buy in areas that I don't feel comfortable sending my wife at six o'clock at night. If I don't feel safe with that, I don't buy there. It's not for me, it's for someone else. The repair and maintenance on the 1960s and 70s, those are going to be a little bit more heavy repair maintenance because they're just not as strong as structures. And I'm, I am being general there because we have had some that are completely rebuilt and are very strong structures, but generally they're not. 90s and newer are a little bit stronger and better. My avatar resident that I mentioned, the blue collar handyman, handy woman, doesn't usually call me when it's a small maintenance request because that's what they do for a living. And they're pride won't even allow them to call me for a toilet flapper because they'll fix it <laughs> if they're a plumber they fix it and we're comfortable with that now i don't want them a plumber working on the electric that's not safe and it's not a good idea but we have those conversations with them 
we haven't had any higher maintenance requests really or dollars than any site built home my ego is a little bit on me to beat a regular site built home but we run our numbers the same you know if you treat the property well you can repair anything as long as you don't let it get completely dilapidated just like a house so as far as the when you fix the properties up before you put somebody in them as far as the like finishes and features that you target, how do you think about that to really go after your avatar tenant and what they look for as far as amenities and finishes, things like that? So again, I kind of have two different types of properties. I have my older 1960s and 70s. I kind of mentioned those earlier. Those are in the lower end of the rent side. And I'm not going to give exact numbers because it's going to be different all over the country, but Let's just say for Florida, it's in around $1,000, which is the low side of the affordable housing space. I'm going to make those true handyman specials. They're going to be safe and livable, but probably a little ugly. And then the handyman is going to come in and say, well, can I paint these walls? And I say, yes, you can. Because, I mean, they can hurt with paint, but it's not going to destroy the place. So I like that. It shows that they're going to take pride in the place and it's going to be their home. I also have stuff that's in the $2,000 range. I did say $2,000 for a mobile home. Yep. That's the normal reaction I get. Yeah. And a site-built home, a concrete structure for the same three-bedroom, two-bath, rents for $2,000 in that area. I don't fix it up to be granite and everything exactly perfect, shiny, the same as theirs, because that home comes with an acre of land. And what people don't realize is they're also renting that land. So think about the contractor that has a utility trailer, the lawn maintenance people that have a few utility trailers. I have a little shed there. So they want the fenced yard for their dogs, the shed. They want. They don't want an HOA saying you can't have anything branded in here. You can't have a trailer in front of it. They don't want that. So they value the land and the place they're staying. So it's kind of like they're renting two separate things. People don't do that math in their head. But that's in reality what's happening. And there's less of those out there for rent as well. So we go back to that supply and demand. There's less places. So now they're either going to have to rent somewhere for their trailer and everyone wants it all right there at home. But we get the same rent. Now that is above affordable housing in my area. So personally, I think that we're in a recession or we're really, really, really close to one. Maybe one day we'll find out what one is. But... <laughs> When that happens, I want most of my portfolio in the affordable housing space because I believe that's a safer space to be because as we the recession progresses, people lose their jobs, we'll just slowly come down rent levels because they're going to have to. They can't afford anything else. Affordable housing space is already pretty high in demand. We'll get higher in demand, which means we could raise rents if we go to textbook economics. I'm not counting on that. I'm counting on a larger applicant pool to never go without someone that's going to be in the home to pay rent and take care of the property. I never go without paying my bills. Makes sense. What would it take to get you to switch over to mobile home parks? Is it, or is that completely out? You know, I took mobile home parks out of my vision a few years ago. I used to look at them. I still study them. I still look at them. I have a really good niche and maybe one day it stops working. I, I can't fully imagine that, but you know, that's a bad mindset to have saying it never works. What I do is I do really well in my niche. I make a lot of money. 
I take some of my money and I go put it in someone's syndication that has a mobile home park. So now I don't have to redo all the work. I don't have to hire a manager to manage the managers and do all that. I get to be lazier with that money. And that's the way I like to work. I'm really good at one thing instead of building a bunch of businesses. Nice. Okay. I like that. I like the focus and appreciate that you're staying focused on your main thing. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Adrian, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? It's going to be Hal Elrod, and it's his book, The Miracle Morning. That book changed my life. I think I'm seven-ish years into doing The Miracle Morning. I might miss a handful of days a, a year. It's changed my life. Hal Elrod is my favorite famous person. Nice. I like that. I'll have to go back and reread that. I've read it a few years ago. And yeah, honestly, the book is fantastic. Actually, he just came out with the revision of it. But you can just go find an old podcast interview of him or a YouTube interview of him and get the whole concept of the book in an hour interview. That's how I started it, fell in love with him and his Miracle Morning. And now I've been a follower ever since, but then I did eventually read it. Nice. Question number two, who or what inspires you? This is a really hard one because you're asking for one person. And I like to help people that are underserved. And that goes everywhere. So my sellers that I'm helping, as I said, there's less competition. They're not served. And the stigma of the trailer trash and the slumlords is higher in my area, in the niche. So I want to break that. I want to help these people out that have less options. So that's there. I, I do the same within my charity work. I like to give to the smaller charities where my money does go further, but not as many people know about it. So it's kind of an idea of a person. And I just, when it feels right. Nice. I appreciate that. Question number three, think about Adrian at 80 years old. What advice or feedback does he have to give of Adrian of today? So my good friend Dave Peters asked me this question whenever I'm stuck on a life decision. And my answer is almost always stop overthinking it and just enjoy it. So I'm overthinking a, a question or what to do in life or should I start doing mobile home parks? Well, am I going to enjoy life more? Is it going to be a simpler life? I just want to enjoy life and it has to be fun. So fun is a big word for me. So I can't answer that question with a fun answer. The answer is no. Nice. That's a good one. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us today and teaching us about your mobile home investing model. If folks want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about you or anything like that, where can they track you down? Best place to go is lifestyle-rei.com slash Taylor. And on there, I'll have a free PDF that people can download to debunk even more myths than we got through today. There's 14 of them on there to help change your mindset so that you understand that these are not a bad stigma. But then you can go start making money with the single units like me or maybe a mobile home park and help more people out. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday right now. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.